0: Let's open the Word of God at the book of Isaiah once more, Isaiah chapter 49, and I'd like you to turn to the text, which is verse 15 and 16. The book of Isaiah at the chapter number 49, verse 15 and 16. Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. We all know that Isaiah was God's special messenger to Judah and Jerusalem, and that he had a very timely ministry indeed. When the southern kingdom refused to join Israel and Syria against the forces of the Assyrians, she fell foul of the wrath of those two neighboring countries. And just then, the prophet counseled the political leadership in Judah not to ask the Assyrians for aid. But as we know, a headstrong King Ahaz rejected the good word of God's servant. And that, of course, only served... To encourage Assyria, which, after capturing the northern kingdom, targeted the southern kingdom. But by divine direction, Isaiah tells Hezekiah to trust completely in the God of heaven. Don't go making the same mistake as your father. Don't go in uh, for the help of the heathen, namely this time the Egyptians. And mercifully for Judah... Of course, Hezekiah listened. He not only listened, but he prayed. And when he prayed and enlisted the prayer support of others, God worked for Judah a notable wonder. In one night alone, by God's hand, there fell no less than 185,000 Assyrians. It was a wonderful victory. In the words of the Psalm 126, then was our mouth filled with laughter, and our tongue was singing. But tragically, in the aftermath, Hezekiah didn't act wisely. We know the story of how when the Babylonians came to congratulate him, he showed them all his treasures. And for being overly accommodating to these representatives of an idolatrous nation, Isaiah opens his mouth yet again and now foretells the loss of royal wealth and of Judah's eventual captivity in Babylon. But that's not the end of the story, of course, because the God of the Bible, the God of heaven, is a God who remembers mercy in the midst of wrath. He does it not just for individuals, but praise his name, he also does it for nations. And through the prophet he speaks of a wonderful turn in the captivity of his people and a marvelous deliverance such as would call forth the praises not just of isolated voices here and there, but would call forth the praises of the totality of creation. So we have those wonderful words in verse 13. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and Break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord hath comforted his people, and he will have mercy upon his afflicted. What welcome news this was for Judah. Because you see, at that particular time, they could see absolutely no cause for rejoicing. Here were people who felt forsaken and forgotten, not just anticipating captivity. But especially, of course, when they were eventually carried off to the strange land. And they lament in verse 14 Zion hath said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. Do you know there are many Christians of the same ilk? Many Christians who have felt the same when pressed by the burdens of life, or maybe under the rod of a providential chastisement, or perhaps even when suffering for righteousness' sake. David was a case in point, wasn't he? Do you remember that series of questions he asked one of another after another as he thought about his condition? He said, will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies, Selah? But in point of fact, we can say today that even though the Christian may sometimes forget God, God Almighty never forgets the Christian. And you see, here in this text, he gives us, he gives his loved ones solid ground for faith and hope. How do I know? How do I know Bad as things may get? They may get worse still. Who knows? But how do I know in all of this that my God and Savior will not forget me? I have only one thing to go on for my hope. I have only one foundation upon which to build my faith in such circumstances as these. All I have, and yes, all I need, is a wonderful promise of God Almighty. And this text reveals to us that this God who never forgets, is a God of unparalleled compassion, a God of unquestionable commitment, and a God of unfeeling care. Notice the first of these, the unparalleled compassion. And that comes in the form of a question, which God then goes on to answer. He poses this question, a very pertinent question, Can a woman forget her sucking child? Could there ever come a time when she will not feel something for that life that she carried in her womb and has sustained thus far? Well, even if that is the case, God says, Yea, they may forget, but I will not forget thee. This gives us a wonderful picture of God which we sometimes forget about. Because in more than one scripture, God is described under the figure of a mother. For example, in chapter 42, he describes his concern for the welfare of Judah in this way. He says, I have long time hold my peace. I have been still and refrained myself. Now will I cry like a travailing woman. And what about these words in chapter 46 of Isaiah? God says, Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb. God also says through Isaiah chapter 66, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. She shall suck, and she shall be borne upon her sides, and be dandled upon the knees, as one whom his mother comforteth. So will I comfort you, and ye shall be comforted in Jerusalem. But we must ever bear in mind that while the metaphor of motherhood is employed to describe the actions of God toward the objects of his care, there is no biblical warrant for calling him other than he identifies himself. There is no biblical warrant for calling him mother or for referring to him by the feminine pronoun she. And yet still because of it, nevertheless, the the motherly instinct of God is a tremendous comfort for his children. We all know something, surely, about the love of human mothers. This word here, compassion, which is used... In reference to it, it is a wonderful word. It's a translation of a Hebrew term which means to fondle. It is something which expresses deep affection and tenderness. Same Hebrew word is rendered by the word pity in Psalm 103. And it's used no less than 12 times in Isaiah, more actually than in any other Old Testament book. But even if we look at the English word itself, the English word compassion, it's also very beautiful. Comes from an old 14th century term which literally means a suffering along with another. So there is nothing quite like a mother's love, therefore. According to the old Spanish proverb, an ounce of mother is worth a ton of priest. Washington Irvine, the famous 18th, 19th century American writer, said the love of a mother is never exhausted, it never changes, it never tires. It endures through all and good report and bad report in the face of a world's condemnation, a mother's love still lives on. And yet, as the text tells us, there, is, there are exceptions to the rule. God says, yea, they may forget. It's not inevitable with everyone, but it is true that some do. Human love, as great as it is, is never perfect. It may tire. It may even die. A woman may, in weakness, lose sight of the need of the most helpless or most dependent infant. Or perhaps, out of sheer hardness, cast off care and conscience altogether. Like the story of Ebony Wilkerson in America, who drove her minivan into the surf at Daytona and was charged with three counts of attempted First degree murder. That's a more extreme example of how sometimes a mother may forget. But you see, even though God has a motherly instinct, as we've discovered, God's love is, unlike the strongest love of the greatest mother, God's love is perfect. There is not the slightest possibility that it can ever fail. God says, though they may forget, Mark the word of contrast, yet will I not forget thee. Folks, after the cross, after the death of Christ, after his pouring out his soul as an offering for our sin, after giving up every drop of his precious life's blood, how can we doubt that? Didn't he love us before we loved him? Even when we were deserving of his wrath? Loved us so much that he gave his son to save us. His son who took our place in Golgotha's tree and bore the punishment due to us for our rebellion. But he loves us redeemed to this day and tomorrow will be the same and forever. No change with Jehovah. Absolutely nothing. This is the first thing to grasp. Absolutely nothing. God is telling us himself. It's not merely the comment of a preacher, even the word of the prophet. God is speaking here through the prophet and God himself is telling us Absolutely nothing can diminish his compassion. Isaac Watts wrote it like this. Amidst his wrath, compassion shines. His strokes are lighter than our sins. And while his rod corrects his saints, his ear indulges their complaints. And his eternal love is sure to all his saints and shall endure from age to age. This truth shall reign, nor shall his people hope in vain, God's unparalleled compassion. The second thing I want you to see is God's unquestionable commitment. He says in the beginning of verse 16, just bidding us take a closer look, he says, Behold, I have graven thee on the palms of my hands. You know that little word, behold, we read it so often in the Bible, we forget about the worth and value of it. But the word itself is a word which I've called a word of divine excitement. God is thrilled about what he is doing and has done for his people. By this word, this word behold, God is calling our attention away from absolutely everything else. Regardless of the legitimacy of other things that otherwise occupy our attention, God is saying, put them to one side for a moment. Think well upon this. Take a look at me. Don't look so much at your problems as on me. Take a look, behold. Take a look at my hands where I have marked myself for you. And so the Lord is calling our attention to something of far more significance than anything else. Something which is calculated to edify us and to thrill our hearts like nothing else can. This word, behold, is a great word. Behold, take a look. Fix your eyes on this today. A wonderful word. you notice the other occurrences of it in Isaiah? It's always a word that, that brings out the thrill in God's heart, something that should register in our hearts too. God says in Isaiah 7, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son."er He says again in chapter 28, Behold, take a look at this now. Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation of tried and precious and sure stone. Or again in chapter 32, Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness. But I think the word in the text is more personal still. Behold, I have graven thee on the palms of my hands. It's a word of divine excitement. It shows us today that our God is keen to bless us while we are here. Let him do it just as he pleases, dear Christian. Let him minister to your heart just as he pleases. Listen to him today with your undivided attention. Get enthused about this God who is enthused and excited about you. Stir yourself up. Take an interest in this God who loves you with an undying passion. It's a word of divine excitement. But this unquestionable commitment also is seen by the personal pronoun. The personal pronoun which... De- describes or identifies rather the divine engraver. Here's a sacred craftsman, the very same holy character spoken of in verse 14. You notice how he's called or what he's called there? He's called Lord twice over, but the spelling is different in each case. The first is spelt in small capitals in our authorized version. It stands for Jehovah, and that's the name Wonderful name of the eternal God and covenant relationship with his people. The first time it occurs, way back in Genesis 3, man has fallen, God has come in with a message of hope, and he pities fallen man and gives him the wonderful promise of a virgin-born redeemer. And the inspired writer records it like this, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. Then this other name, Lord, spelt in ordinary type, stands in the Hebrew for, stands for the Hebrew name Adonai, which which means your master or owner or ruler or provider. And this is a God who says, Look what I have done on myself for you. I cannot write my name upon God's hand. I cannot make such an indelible impression by myself on the Almighty, but He's done it Himself. And because of who he is, you and I can be sure that his work is not just well-intentioned, but his work is permanent. What God has written, he has written. He just cannot cast off his loved ones. Look again at the text. This expression, have graven, is a word of divine encouragement. The Lord does not say, I have printed thee in the palms of my hands, or even I have stamped thee there. Printing and stamping, as we know, may just be a surface work, but graving, now that's different. Graving speaks of a greater, a deeper work done by the keenest eye, wrought by the heaviest blows and with the expending of great energy. You know, one day God came down upon the Mount of Sinai to give his law to Israel through Moses. The psalmist says a fiery law issued from his finger. Exodus says the tables were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God graven upon the tables. We know the story afterwards how Moses, when he comes down from the mount, sees the people playing about the business of idolatry, worshiping the golden calf. He breaks the tablets of stone, but God gives his word again the second time in the same way. Whatever happened to those stones, who knows? We can't say for sure what happened, to those rocks upon which God carved his precepts, but we can be sure of something better and greater. We can be sure that today, though he is 2,000 years gone from this world, Emmanuel, our great God and Savior, still bears in his body the marks of his passion, which are unerasable. And he has cut us into his heart even more deeply than into his hands. And it's not just the case of I will or I am in the process of doing, but I have done it. I have graven thee on the palms of my hands. Upon the palms speaks again of divine empathy. The inscription here is in the tenderest part of the hand. Moreover, it is made in both hands. And whatever way my Lord turns his hands, turns his nail-pierced hands, his eyes Always light upon the divine engraving which he has made there. He cannot, when he looks on those hands, but think of me and feel for me. Or, as the prophet puts it in chapter 63, he says, In all their afflictions he is afflicted. Are you feeling discouraged today, Christian? Are you feeling afflicted? Are you feeling that nobody cares? Are you feeling that there's no end to your grief, no hope, no strength? God says, take a look here. Behold, I have graven thee on the palm of my hands. There's not as sorrow rends the heart, but the man of sorrow sends apart. He sympathizes with our grief and to the sufferer sends relief. He's a God of unquestionable commitment. And then finally, you'll notice that he's a God of unfailing care. Those closing words of verse 16 are significant. He says, thy walls are continually before me. What did this mean for Judah? Well, really the first application is to the walls of Jerusalem, which would one day be rebuilt after the Jews returned from 70 years in Babylon. And the Lord tells them before it actually happens, he says, you know, I have laid plans for the future. I'm not working in an ad hoc fashion. I have already set my plans out. And of course he not only had set forth his plans but he had a very fixed determination to see it through and he did see it through. History bears it out. This promise about the walls was fulfilled literally in the days of his servants Ezra and Nehemiah and during the ministries of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. Of course it wasn't without opposition. It wasn't without bitter opposition. Remember old Sanballat, the governor of Samaria? Boy, oh boy, was he angry when he saw the godly were working to restore the city to its former glory. And the Bible affirms about him. He took great indignation and mocked the Jews. It's a good sign when such people are against the people of God. I mean, you wouldn't want that kind of person as your friend, would you, or as a friend of the church? I remember my father saying years ago, I've never forgotten it, a man is known as much by his enemies as by his friends. What's true for the man is true for the church. Make sure you've got the best friends, but don't worry too much if you've got bad enemies. You don't want certain people on your side helping you in the work of God. Sanballat says, these Jews are feeble. He ridicules their labors. He laughs and he says, what are they going to do, these feeble Jews? Are they going to rebuild a city? The city of God, are they going to rebuild it out of the rubbish that remains? And yet, nevertheless, when Nehemiah prays, what does God do? God renews the strength of the Jews. And this is Isaiah's testimony. So, despite Sanballat, despite the mockery, despite the bitter sarcasm, despite the attempt to demoralize the people of God, so we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. Of course, there was more opposition to these walls that the text speaks about. The Arabians joined in, the Ammonites and the Ashdodites. They heard that the walls were being made up, and they got very excited and angry. And the Bible says they conspired all of them to come together to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. But it didn't make a hint of difference Because God had already said years before, thy walls are continually before me. The work's not going to stop when I help my people to do it. And with a sword in one hand and with a trial in the other, the Jews continued their work watching against the enemy while making up the remaining breaches in the wall. After no less than 52 days, the work was finished. Their labor had not been in vain in Jehovah. Now, why is that important to us? Well, God's unfailing care for Jerusalem really is a a token of his unfailing care for the church. By the church, I I just mean all those who are called by God's grace to the side of Jesus Christ. If you're included in that number, then this promise is also for you. God bears his people in mind continually in order to build them up. The church of Christ is the habitation of Christ through the Spirit. And just like he had an expected end in mind for Jerusalem and Judah, so he has an expected end in mind for his church. Listen to these words. This should thrill your heart today. Psalm 102, When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. Jesus Christ is coming again in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. But he's not coming for a defeated and a dejected church, he's coming for a church that is prepared, the Bible says, as a bride adorned for her husband. And to that end, we will need building up in order that we might be ready. Alas, today, sometimes the organized church is in a very, very poor condition. Like the city walls of Jerusalem, ruined, desolate, full of rubbish, with its defenses down. But still, still I tell you, this word is true. Thy walls are continually before me. Our God can repair and restore and renew. And listen today, that's not a favor that's just going to fall into the Christian's lap, the church's lap, without her praying and repenting and without a fresh commitment to put the interests of the kingdom of God first. We must take this matter to heart and bring it to the Lord and then we must take it in hand and we must work Pray as though everything depends upon God, then work. Work as though everything depends upon you. And in the end, you know, God will get the credit anyway because he's the one who causes his work to abound by his grace. Jesus did say, didn't he? I will build my church. Zachariah says, Even he shall build the temple and he shall bear the glory. Beneath his eye and care, the edifice shall rise majestic strong and fair and shine above the skies. There's hope for the church because of our Lord's unfailing care. What can I say as I finish this morning? Well, the first thing to take home is this. Trust God more. It's your business to cast your care upon Jesus. How can you not, after hearing what he has done for you and what he's ready to do for you, it's your business to trust God more, to bring your care more to him. Archbishop Fenelon expressed it this way. Tell him all that's on your heart. Tell him your troubles, that he may comfort you. Talk to him of your temptations, that he may shield you. Show him the wounds of your heart, that he may heal them. Blessed are they who attain to such familiar, unreserved communion with God. Trust him more. Love him more. God has marked himself for you. You are marked and so by the atoning blood of Christ. Never be ashamed to own him. And praise him more because you just can't praise him too much. We have to say as we look over our personal history, if we're believers, over the history of the Christian church, over the history of the local assembly, for all the Lord has done for me, I never will cease to praise him. And for his love so rich and free, I never will cease to praise him because he's a God of unparalleled compassion A God of unquestionable commitment and a God of unfailing care. Take God's word home with you today. Thank him for it. Let it be buried down in your heart. And may the Lord make it a rich blessing throughout this week for his name's sake. Amen.